Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober, covering lifestyles in the world of real food. My guest today is Rich Paul Wells, founder of Rich Nuts. Rich, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on, Aaron. I really appreciate it. I appreciate having you on, too. I know we met several years ago, back when your business had just started at an environmental networking group, and I was very impressed because you don't see a lot of sprouted nuts, and so it was great getting to sample them and learn what you're all about, and I felt that it was really going to go somewhere because you have something that we really need to see more of in the market. Yeah, thank you. It's been quite a journey for me, and it's not like I have started a business in a typical sense, meaning like had business intentions with it, right? It really just designed the thing to solve my own issues. Right, and we'll get into the growth of the business in a little bit, but why don't we start with you explaining what made you first decide to go into producing sprouted nuts? Yeah, interestingly enough, so I worked for 20 years as a firefighter and paramedic for Los Angeles County Fire Department. And as you can imagine, Southern California has lots of brush fires, right? So end up on these brush fires, which are basically in wilderness areas, far away from any restaurants or food or anything like that. And it's not really practical to bring a lot of food with you. The options that were available, generally speaking, on the side of a hill <laughs> when it's on fire were like prison sack lunches. Sometimes we could get MREs or fast food. So none of those things really worked for me because I had already started claiming my food sovereignty and eating really organic and clean, lightly processed foods, so mostly whole foods. So I would always carry a bag of raw cashews with me, generally like a one-pound bag or something. And it could be out there six, eight, ten hours working really hard. And instead of eating the MREs, I started to eat trail mixes and the raw cashews. And the problem was once I started eating a whole pound of raw cashews on a brush fire, you know, a handful at a time here and there when I could sneak them in between not trying to die, I would get gassy and bloated and have brain fog. And that was really the opposite of what I was looking for. Essentially, I was looking for energy from the fat and the protein to keep me going. So I did a bunch of research and it became really clear to me at that point that it was the nuts because that's all I had eaten maybe all day, you know, as a pound of cashews. So I did some research and I found that nuts, seeds, and even grains for that matter, legumes also, are concentrated with anti-nutrients, they're often called, most of which are like phytic acid and lectins, which by design block, inhibit, and disrupt our digestion, allowing that nut or seed to pass through its whole so that it can grow into a new plant. That's just the intelligent design of nature. We're essentially eating the offspring of the plant. So they have a plan for those offspring and we are part of it as animals. Now, I read that if you started sprouting them or soaking them in water to activate them first, you could put them into a growth phase where they drop those defenses, they became more digestible and therefore more nutritious. So I started soaking them overnight and trying them, and it was pretty good. It solved my digestive issues, that's for sure. But the problem was they were really mushy and wet, and so the texture didn't really work for me. And also, I couldn't just put wet nuts in a bag and leave them there for three months and hope for them to not get moldy. So that's when I started dehydrating them. And that really locked in the flavor, brought back the crunch, and preserved them naturally. 
And I used sage and rosemary, which was growing on the land where I lived at the time in Topanga. And I started carrying these things around in a jar. I would put them in a bag and have them on brush fires, but I would carry them around in a mason jar and just start sharing them with all my friends and family at different events, fellow firefighters. And eventually the word got out that I was a nuts guy. So every time I walked in a room, everyone would put out their hands, hey, you got any more of those nuts? So I kept giving them to everyone for probably six months or a year. And eventually I did an audit on myself and I had spent like $700 that month on raw organic cashews and giving them away. So I was like, you know what? I love you guys, but you're going to have to start paying me for them. And that's how Rich Nuts started. (laughs) Wow. As I interview entrepreneurs of all different types of natural food businesses, it's interesting to see where people came from because a lot of them typically weren't in the food business or even in entrepreneurship. I've interviewed people that have come from IT, attorneys, and in your case, we have being a firefighter, a paramedic. And I think that's part of what makes the natural food industry so great is it's people came to this for real need. They're not just selling something because they think it can sell, but they've seen the benefits of selling these different type of natural foods, whether it be a meat or a ferment or sprouted nuts. Yeah, I, to be honest, we were both at the last two food shows, right? The Fancy Food and the Expo West. Right. And you can really see the brands where it's the founders there and they solve this problem and they have this great product and they did all this years of research to get it to market and everything. You can also see that there's a group of businesses there that maybe are just trying to tap into the trends in the market, right? Like plant-based. Mm-hmm. And you can really feel the difference. They're all flashy colors and marketing, and they talk about all this, but they don't have a good story of how they founded it. And oftentimes I've found, can't say this is true of everything, but when I sample those products, I'm like, wow, this feels like it's missing something. Maybe it's a story that makes it taste better. I don't know. But it's definitely missing something, and it's not like there was a person that was solving their own needs behind it. And I think that's what really sets us apart is that I had a unique perspective that I came from, and I started my own flavor philosophy, which is basically that nuts taste really good on their own. But if you add a little bit of seasoning, just a touch, you can really accentuate the natural flavor and bring them out. And so that's my approach to it. And I think... When you get those big businesses, they get a lot of funding. Hey, we're going to get $5 million and build a plant-based food company, and we'll develop the products later. They hire the best in the business food scientists, which those guys really know what they're doing, but they all come from the same training, right? And they have a certain parameter, so you get the same type of product. So it doesn't bring a lot of innovation, and I think that really comes from those entrepreneurs, those people like me who have a specific problem that they solved. I would agree with that. I think some of them, what's missing is love, and it's just a trend like the plant-based, and that was certainly a big one at the last show. We'll see what happens with that in shows to come. That one, certainly, we've expressed the opinion of it here on this show that plant-based meats as heavily processed are not really a natural food at all, as I see and as my guests have. Right now, it's selling, but yours is one which I've been longing to see on the market because there really aren't too many sprouted nuts. So I think it's definitely an overlooked part in the natural foods industry. Do you think it'll be a growing one in the years to come? It definitely is. As far as food trends go, sprouting is coming on strong from the research we've done. Yeah, there was a period and maybe we were a little ahead of it because really I started the business in 2017 by exploring farmers markets and working from a home kitchen, cottage food industry license. And at that point, I would be out at the farmers market asking people, hey, have you ever tried sprouted nuts? And they'd look at me kind of weird and keep walking. (laughs) 
but they didn't really understand what sprouted was. And being from California where people are really hip to healthy food and they're kind of at the cutting edge, I would say, in the nation on healthy food and that kind of stuff. So I notice now that a lot more people at least have some level of familiarization with sprouting. They might say, if I say, hey, do you know what sprouting is? I would say probably in California, maybe 30 to 50% of the people have some idea what it is. They'll say, hey, it makes it more digestible or it's better for me, right? And I'm like, yeah, exactly. And they're like, can you tell me more about it? And then I like do my little spiel to educate them. So for me, a big part of this whole thing is really, I'm not here to sell anyone anything. I just want to educate them about what sprouting is and how it can affect their diet, their well-being, their ability to thrive. They ask, and by the way, I happen to have a product here if you want to try it. And then usually they want to buy it right away. But definitely sprouting, I think, is a trend that's coming on stronger. And people know about it more from grains. And also seeds, right? Because you can eat the sprouted microgreens and stuff like that on your food. Right. And that's something that's always surprised me with movements such as paleo where they avoid grains and legumes, but they see nuts as okay. And also, I don't feel they've even focused on the importance of sprouting the nuts. They've just said, oh, nuts are fine and you can make these almonds into different milks and breads and stuff like that. And I think it's really something that should be noted that if you're going to avoid grains and legumes, yeah, the nuts may be easier to digest than those other ones, but you still really need to sprout them if you want the ultimate health. Yeah, agreed. And that is something that the paleo movement looks over. When I first started, really, I, I mentioned earlier, claiming my food sovereignty, and that was part of my challenge at the fire department was we would eat together. And so you have to kind of eat in a group. And oftentimes, the majority, I would say at the time, would cook based on what the lowest, cheapest food was, which is obviously all the subsidized right. pastas and breads <laughs> and all the stuff that we normally don't want to eat, right, as appropriate omnivores. So I would get into a lot of conflict around that with the guys on my shift, and it was really challenging. So I was like, you know what, I didn't even know it was called paleo yet, but I said, hey, I'm just going to start avoiding processed foods and see what that looks like. And essentially, that is the paleo diet, right? You're just eating fruits, vegetables, nuts, kind of how my process started. And then later on, someone goes, oh, that's called the paleo diet. And I was like, what? Really? There's a thing about it? And I looked into it, and I found out about it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's pretty much how I'm eating. And even though I was eating paleo and organic, that's when I started to develop the digestive problems from eating so many nuts. Oftentimes, people don't notice these things because they'll eat maybe a small handful of nuts and some other stuff, and they don't really know what's causing them the gas or the bloating or the brain fog. But for me, it became super, super obvious because that's all I had eaten all day was nuts, and I noticed the symptoms. But yeah, I think the sprouting thing, it's just an awareness thing, right? Right. The more you become aware of it, like GMOs, we didn't know GMOs were bad for us until we became aware of it. And that's, again, the big problem with those plant-based meats is, from my understanding, they're all GMO and they have a lot of crazy chemicals in them. So that's why I avoid them. <laughs> oh, there's many problems. They're GMO, they're ingredients such as the seed oils in them, and just a lot of heavily processed stuff because some of them do avoid soy, but they use a pea protein, mm -hmm. which is different than a pea. A pea is a whole food, but they use this pea protein, which is a very refined version of the pea. So it's not a lot of real food that yeah. I see in these plant-based yeah. meats. Well, I'm definitely on the appropriate omnivore side because I like to hunt and I hunt elk 
and usually I get one elk and it lasts a whole year. I give them away to friends and family and have people over for dinner. And I did it for health reasons, but then it became such a spiritual thing to me because, you know, we came from hunter-gatherers and, and a lot of the movement today, the healthy food movement, is about coming away from animals. And I don't want to go off too much on a tangent, but I think what people are really offended by, it offends me the way we raise animals to be in our food and it doesn't make sense, right? They're like these animals that are pent up. They live in their own poop. They're eating the wrong food. They're pumped full of hormones. That's just not what I'm looking for in my food source. But instead of avoiding completely meat for me, I took on hunting. And now I get this animal that lived in its natural conditions under the perfect natural environment, not being touched by man. So it feels very nourishing when I eat that meat. Now, if I go have chicken or even beef that's grass-fed and all the things, to me, it doesn't taste as nourishing as the elk that is living in its natural stomach. Yes. So I think it's similar with animals and with plants and, in your case, with elk and with nuts that they ought to be properly prepared. And I know as you've exhibited at the Wise Traditions Conference, that's what I like about the Weston A. Price Foundation is you don't have to give up any of these foods. And they even have proper ways to prepare things like grains, such as preparing it as sourdough. And with legumes, it's a similar thing of soaking the legumes and sprouting them. And it really comes back down to all of these foods we've had for a long time. And anything really, if you look at, if you've had it for tens of thousands of years, then most likely if you do it the traditional way, it's good. If it's something that hasn't been around that long, like these seed oils, then that's usually going to mean that's not something you should have. Yeah, exactly. And you also mentioned the legumes and the greens. And it's fascinating, too, because I read Dr. Gundry's book, The Plant Paradox, and he really goes into it about the pressure cooking. And for years, I avoided beans because they would do the same thing, make me gassy and all that stuff. And then I started pressure cooking them, and we can make elk chili, and it doesn't cause any of the stomach upset. Nice. Yeah, because of the pressure cooker. So that's also another way to look at it. But they require some sort of process is the key either fermentation or soaking or pressure cooking, whichever one you want to do, depending on what you're eating. So I found that to be really valuable for sure. Absolutely. And as we're also talking about these plant-based foods, another ingredient that's often used in them specifically for the plant-based milks is almonds. And almonds, there's a big issue with sustainability, especially if you're living somewhere like California where we've had a problem with a drought and I know that almonds are one product that you don't include in rich nuts. Can you explain a little more of your decision on that? Yeah. Well, the thing with us is eventually we want to become a regeneratively sourced brand. All of our ingredients will come from regenerative agriculture. So I'm super aware of the impact of our product, of our business on the environment. And the big thing for me coming from California, seeing the droughts getting worse and worse every year as a firefighter, brush fires getting worse. I just... I couldn't honestly use almonds knowing that they take one gallon of water per almond in a drought-stricken state. didn't make a lot of sense to me. So from that perspective alone, I chose not to do almonds. And then additionally, looking at all the different nuts that are on the market and the nut market in general, almonds are very competitive. There's a lot of burdens in that space. Yes. So between the environmental impact and the crowdedness of that area within our space, I just decided not to. Not that I have anything against almonds. Almonds taste great. There's actually people that are importing them from Spain. They're dry farms, so they don't require any irrigation. They just live off of the rain because it's in the right environment. So those ones I would be interested in, but then that's also bringing in something from Spain. So you guys think about the carbon footprint of that. So there's a lot of things to weigh out. There are, and like you said, there are almonds that are definitely 
properly farmed and properly sourced. I've had on Tim Richards of Philosopher Foods who makes almond butter from regenerative almond farms. So certainly it can be done right, but you're correct that also it is a very competitive industry. It seems to be perhaps the most popular type of nut sold. And with you, we get introduction to a lot of other great nuts. Another thing is for people that are concerned with not being able to find properly sourced almonds for almond milk, you did a great demo for my Western Price chapter, the Weston A. Price Pasadena chapter on making milk with other nuts. You proved that it can be done with really any other kind of nut, like walnuts and other types of nuts. So you don't have to limit yourself to having almond milk. There's plenty of other types of nut milks. Yeah, that's true. One of the ones I really love for nut milk, and people don't think of it, but the macadamias. Macadamias are wonderful. They're super high in fat, great omegas, and they make a great milk, along with pecans, too. And that's one of my favorite things to teach. That's an easy thing to teach because, honestly, we can make anything. We can make our own kombucha, sourdough, you can make your own yogurt. Most people don't have the time to do all of these things. So our process takes two to three days and requires some specialized equipment. So nut milks are very simple. All you need is a blender, really. So that's one of the things I love to share with people. Yes, and I love to encourage people to do it because... I see a lot of nut milks on the market, and as an appropriate omnivore, I'm all for properly sourced dairy. There's great raw milk and A2 milk coming from regenerative grass-fed farms, but I do get also that there are a number of people who can't digest any kind of milk, and so for them, nut milks are important, but I'm not a big fan of a lot of the ones on the market because I often see the first or second ingredient there is sugar, and then they just have so many things like carrageenan Mm -hmm. and a lot of synthetic vitamins which are not needed and i talked to people in the paleo community this and they've explained that it's really not that hard to make your own nut milk no it's very simple and you're right about all those different ingredients they put in there that people are unaware of like carrageenan and it's impacts on the digestive system. It's an easy enough thing to do. You soak them in water and then you basically, next day you mix them with water and it's a small handful makes quite a bit of milk. So I generally, like you, I don't choose to drink nut milks in my daily routine. I do use grass-fed A2 milk and make my own yogurt. That's basically my only dairy products. I do occasionally have some manchego, some different types of sheep cheese and stuff like that too. As long as it's sourced well, I'm really okay with it. Me too. And yet cheese and butter, that's my main source of dairy often. Yeah. And and I would like to add, you talked about the sourcing. That's so important. And that goes across the board for any kind of food, right? If you're talking about plant foods, you want to have foods that, for me, the gold standard, the number one type of food sourcing you could have is wild forage, right? Because you can't really do better than nature. As long as there's not some sort of toxin in the environment in that area or something. I love to hunt for wild mushrooms or get wild cactus fruit and make jams out of it. Or there's a lot of elderflower and elderberry that grows in Southern California. So I sometimes will make an elderflower ferment that kind of tastes like a champagne or occasionally I'll do some elderberry syrup. So wild forage being the gold standard, the next layer down for me is regeneratively sourced agriculture. And yeah, to be honest, that was really a big motivator in me getting into business because I knew I had these nuts, but and they were organic and stuff. And it's becoming more obvious what's happening with the climate crisis. And I was like, wow, I read this white paper in 2016 or 2017. And in that paper, they talk about if the entire world switched the agricultural system over to a regenerative one as opposed to a conventional one, fossil fuel based one 
that we could avert the climate crisis within five years without making any cuts. And I was like, what? That's crazy. That's the first good news I've heard about the climate crisis ever. And in addition to that, it happens to produce 30% more nutritious food. I was like, okay, this is a winning combination. We have to go regenerative. Although becoming regenerative, that's a challenge, and we're still working our way there, but the mission and the goal. Right. In terms of sourcing from regenerative farms, what do you look for? Yeah, well, see, that's the thing. All of these different certifications, and maybe some of your listeners aren't aware of all this, they're very expensive for the brands and for the farmers to take on. And there's a layer of paperwork that you have to either do yourself or hire someone to manage. So then that adds more expense to making your business work actually as a business. So those things are challenging. And then what is the standard? Regenerative agriculture, that's a new standard that's coming out. There's a few different companies that are certifying. Demeter has been doing it for a while from Germany, and they're basically using biodynamic standards, which is all based on Rudolf Steiner's work. And then you got the Regenerative Organic Coalition certification, the ROC certification. That's kind of the new kid on the block. But, and I think there's even another one. Yeah, there are a couple. Yeah. There's a force and a movement that is around all of this because the ground is pushing it, carbon underground. There's all these people, but the definitions are still being worked out. What exactly it means? How can you call it that? So it makes it a little challenging because you talk to some farmers who may be doing things regeneratively sourced. They may be doing all the regenerative stuff, but they're not certified. So it's kind of a gray area, and it's something that we're still working out and trying to figure out as an industry, I believe. But if I get organic macadamias, let's see, the quality of those nuts is also very important to me. Just because they have an organic symbol on them doesn't mean they're going to be high quality. So I learned that with macadamias, and I'm working on a source from Dominican Republic that's completely regenerative. They're not certified even organic, so technically they're conventional, but they're not actually conventional. So I can buy those at conventional prices and then tell the story of how they are regeneratively sourced. So that's kind of where we're looking right now to go. Yes. So there are four major regenerative certification programs that I know of, and I touched upon this on my Expo West recap show. So you had brought up the Regenerative Organic Certified, which is a joint venture of the Rodale Institute, mm-hmm. Dr. Bronner's, and Patagonia. Another one is Land to Market, which is done by the Savory Institute. Alan Savory, very much a pioneer of holistic management, and they have a program. And then there's also a greener world. They have a number of certifications for animal welfare, and one of theirs is regenerative certification. And then just introduced at Expo West is Gabe Brown, who is another regenerative pioneer. He now has Regenified. So there's a number of options, and all programs do it a little differently. I think a certification from any of those is great. Yeah, and I'm curious to know your opinion on this because we're kind of in this debate and quandary within our company about how to take this on. Is it more important to you that it has a stamp or a certification or that it comes from the right place? I think a stamp is a good thing because there's a lot of things you can do with labels, and I don't know the specific rule of what requires them to be labeled regenerative, but just as I know that a lot of times you can see things that are labeled, like, for instance, you just put natural on it, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. I think having a stamp from an organization means that it went through actually some standards and people can look up, well, what does this organization require? So that way they can know more of what it actually means that it's regenerative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so having the set of standards is important to you. I think from a customer 
perspective. If it has that certification, then you know it meets these minimum requirements. So that makes it easy because who's going to go into every story about every ingredient and figure out what's going on? You might, I might, but we're total foodies and we're obsessed by this stuff, right? right. But for the, the most average customer, they see, oh, this is USDA organic. Okay, that means automatically I know it's not GMO and I know they're not using pesticides on it. So that's a win for me right there. Right. So yeah, I think it's important. The USDA organic is a great example of something that actually is meaningful because there's a program that it goes through. But on the other hand, when products just say something like I said, natural or there's also the thing of saying something antibiotic-free, that actually just means that it has a low level enough of antibiotics that they can't be detected. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And that's the thing with the whole sourcing thing. And part of this is actually we are working on this project with a group called Producers Market, and they have this QR code. So it's a technology called Storybird. You basically scan the QR code. We worked on a pilot with our maple pecan flavor, and it tells you the story of that product. So our maple pecan flavor has three different ingredients. It has maple syrup, it has vanilla, and it has pecans. And you can track in there information from our producer, which is the pecan grower, for instance. And he talks about where it's produced, how it's produced, how they shell it, how they package it, and then they send it over to us. Then we do our process. We soak it. We mix in the maple syrup, and you can go on the maple syrup. And he talks about how he taps the trees, how they concentrate the sap down into syrup, and it's shipped to us, and then we use it in our product. So you can go through each ingredient and see the story. And what's really cool, especially with that product line, is that I've cultivated these relationships with these really amazing producers that are family-run businesses, they're farmers, and you get to learn a little bit more about their their story. So that's really exciting to me. Yes. And so does it say the specific farms that these ingredients came from? It does. Yes. Excellent. Yeah. And that was a great adventure for me. I knew maple syrup comes from tree sap, right? But I didn't know how they produced it, what were the steps to making it. So I got to go visit, and oh, wow. that was really cool. Kurt Sawyer of Sawyer's Maple is our maple supplier, and he took me all through his process in the trees. They call it a sugar bush, and then they bring it all down into the sugar shack. Everything is all sugar-related. It was really quite fun and interesting. Oh, I bet. I'd love to go through that. I always love touring any kind of farm and facility where things are made. And that is a thing also that we're seeing a lot more of is these QR codes where you can scan and learn the farms that they came from. We've seen that with meat, with dairy, with eggs honey. And I'd love for it to be seen pretty much with any product that you can find in the stores. I think they should have a QR code and you see the farm where they originated. Yeah, that's a trend that I'm really backing and super supportive of because I want to know where my food comes from. And I want to know how, if it's an animal product, how those animals are treated. I don't want there to be an ag gag where I can't really see. Right. If people can't tolerate the conditions their animals are in, then maybe you shouldn't be eating that. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, let's turn a blind eye to it. They're totally abusing the animals. They live in their own crap. It's disgusting. You would never want to go in there. Why would you eat it? Yes. I remember now about the ag gag rules because that was an interesting thing which kind of had mixed feelings about because what was kind of stopping was people entering into these places illegally, and I don't know that I can necessarily support doing that, but it did also bring up just how bad the conditions are, and this is a 180 of, instead of places trying to prevent cameramen from coming in, instead, they put it themselves and say, hey, this is where we come from. Yeah, exactly. It's 
in its infancy, that whole movement, right? That's a movement. It's a great movement. I think it's going in the right direction, but I think there could be a little bit more storytelling. It's a little bit clunky, but it's getting there and it's a step in the right direction. So I think that for me, I want to know a little bit more about the story of the farmers and why they're growing certain varieties. Like we use a very specific pecan called the Elliott pecan. It comes from Georgia. There are sources in Georgia, and it's a little bit different shape, but man, it has this amazing flavor, and it's more expensive, but I'm like, whatever, this thing tastes amazing. I'd rather use this one than some other one. And the reason it grows organically is because it's resistant to the scab fungus, which all the other trees get in Georgia because of the moisture. So this one is naturally resistant, so it's a perfect variety to grow organically. And to learn about that story is really important, I think, because oftentimes we take these different agricultural products, maybe it's a macadamia orchard, and we put them in the wrong place that they don't normally grow, and there's all kinds of pests there that feed on them, and then we're like, oh, we better spay the whole thing with DDT or whatever, (laughs) and then we're like, oh. We're eating that. Does that make sense? I don't know. So sometimes we have to rethink those things. Right. And we definitely could see, like you said, a lot more detail and a lot more companies doing it. But what I always like to circle back to when people say that this business isn't doing enough is it's a good start and we can go from there. Yeah, exactly. Because we're figuring it out together. And like I said, some trends are good. The sprouting trend, I'm all about it. Plant-based foods in general, I think that's a good trend. But I already talked about the missteps from my opinion, the missteps in the trend. (laughs) Mine too, because plant-based has a lot of definitions. Some say paleo actually is a plant-based diet. A lot of nutritionists will actually say you need to make two-thirds of your plate at least plants. So plants are a good thing to have. I believe in both, especially plants that are prepared the right way, like you do with sprouting nuts and with ferments. Those are great plant-based foods. And there's many great plants you can get in your diet. Cruciferous vegetables are wonderful, but you have to do it the right way and eat real plants, not processed versions of plants that are made to look like meats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting too, with cruciferous plants, for instance, broccoli, the sprouts have a lot more concentration of the nutrients. There's this one thing called sephirophane, and it's a anti-aging chemical, basically. And it's in broccoli, but I think it's 1,700 times more concentrated in broccoli seeds. So you eat a couple of tablespoons of sprouts on your salad and you'd have to eat like seven pounds or something of broccoli to get that much of protein <laughs> in your diet. Right. You, know, you have to eat a lot of these plants, certainly, to get the same nutrients as meat. But I think you need both. And yeah, there's a balance. Yeah, agreed. And the thing you mentioned earlier about processing, too, and what kind of process and how highly processed, that's one of the beautiful things about our product is that we soak it in water, we let it germinate. Germination is a natural process of plants growing, simply sprouting, and then we just dry it with low temperature. It's just warm air blowing across it, and that's what dries it. We don't have to use any oils to roast it or anything like that. So it's super, super simple. That's why it takes so long but the product really speaks for itself in the end. Right. Well, it's all about the slow food movement. Things that can be done super quickly aren't necessarily the best for you. Right. Yeah, I don't know. You could really screw up our product if you took it from soaking and put it in a microwave or something to dry it out. (laughs) And so you've talked about the whole soaking process, and we've also covered upon using regenerative. Additionally, you're certified organic. Do you think it's as important to be organic as it is to be sprouted. Yes. For me, it's about doing all the things right. And it's really about reshaping the way we look at business. 
So if it's a food business, if it can support not only our bodies nutritionally and be of the highest quality, I think that's really important. If it's going to be sprouted and conventional and be covered in pesticides or something, then you're still getting cancer out of it. So I think it's important to do all of the different things, right? Not just one or the other. And we can have it all. And all these innovative brands that have been coming out the last 10 or 15 years, they're showing that it can be done, that we can now have the things that we like that taste good, that are good for us, and that have a positive impact on the planet. And so that's why we're really in support of that movement that's coming on strong. Yes. And so you've covered the soaking, the organic, the regenerative. You also touched upon earlier about coming up with these different flavors. So let's take the time now to hear what some of the flavors are that you offer in Rich Nuts. Yeah. So the original flavor is, we call it savory sage. It's a savory sage cashew. And it's created with sage, rosemary, and sea salt and a little bit of coconut aminos. So that's our first flavor. And it's our most mild flavor, I'd say, but that was the original one that kicked off the whole thing. And then our second flavor is a crunchy curry. So that has a whole bunch of different curry, paprika, seasoning, black pepper. It's our most robust flavor. It's also made with a base of the coconut aminos and a little bit of salt. And it has turmeric in it. So that one's super delicious. Then we have the maple pecan, which I spoke of earlier. It's very simple. The Elliott pecans, maple syrup, and vanilla. That's very delicious. I love that one in the morning with some yogurt. It goes really well with coffee. The cinnamon walnut crunch is kind of like that cereal I used to love as a kid called cinnamon (laughs) toast crunch, except this is a healthy version of that. It has cinnamon, maca, maple syrup, and sea salt. It's really tasty. That's one of our top sellers. And then we have the Brilliant Balsamic. It's a walnut with balsamic vinegar and garlic. Super tasty. That's another savory flavor. goes well on salads. And then I made this trail mix that's super delicious because I noticed the curry-flavored cashew and the maple pecan tasted really good together. I threw in some organic blueberries, some gorgy berries, and some raisins just to give it that trail mix flavor. And that's really a sweet and savory flavored product that is filled with antioxidants. I've actually developed another four flavors, but they're not on the market yet. But I can't wait to bring them out because they're super delicious and really good for you. (laughs) Yes, well, I'm looking forward to finding out what those ones are. I love your trail mix because often in trail mix... I see that they often have this candy in it, and it has a couple healthy things in it, of course, most likely. (laughs) The nuts in it aren't sprouted, but raisins, that's a great sweet one to include in it in place of usually the chocolate candy that they have in the trail mix. Yeah, and I really love that one, too, because it's got a sweet, savory. The curry makes it a little bit savory and kind of spicy almost, and then you got the blueberries, which kind of give it that tart flavor. It's really good. I love that one. And that one's called Go Nuts and Berries. Love it. In what other ways would you say that Rich Nuts is sustainable? Yeah, that's a good question. So one of the things, another dream, and like, you know, the North Star for me is to become a complete, first a carbon neutral company, and then eventually a carbon sink. And the roadmap to get there is basically with the regenerative agriculture. So sequestering three to seven times more carbon per square acre, depending on the ingredient. Then there's also the compostable packaging long-term. Now, the problem is that stuff's not really there yet talked to a couple other companies that tried to do it and their product was going stale because it doesn't have a proper vapor barrier. So I want to do that so bad, (laughs) go compostable. 
but we're just not quite there yet. So we use a recyclable and recycled film, and we're always looking for other options that are greener there. But eventually creating a plant that's solar-powered or other type of green energy-powered, electric vehicles for transportation, Tesla's working on the big tractor-trailers, you got some potential for wind and solar-powered ships. And so just thinking of all those things as they start to add up on our carbon footprint, that's how we see the roadmap to get to completely green and eventually becoming a carbon sink. It could even, at some point, I had this vision of quantifying it. It was like, by buying this bag, you've sequestered 16 grams of carbon or something. And that's where we're headed. So... It's just a matter of getting there, right, step by step. Right. As we've talked about earlier, this is still in the early stages of regenerative agriculture and being truly sustainable. I think of how in the late 90s we saw a revolution in digital technology and the Internet. And if you look back then and remember how primitive it was to how it's become now, 25 years later, just think of what the sustainable food world will be looking like in five years and 10 years and 20 years. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's really exciting to me because then you can have a business that brings all of these externalities into the fold. And this big part of my personal mission is to reconnect people to nature, right? Most of us, we get around by machine and we live in a box and we think how we're somehow separate from nature, but reality is we rely on nature for everything. So I feel like if I can help people connect back to nature, then they'll understand that they're a part of nature and they'll be a little bit more mindful of how they treat nature, right? So look at these traditional legacy businesses that are basically dominating the world at this point. And they have this thing called externalities where they never accounted for the cost of carbon going into the atmosphere or the damage they did to the environment. They would just call those things externalities, meaning it's outside of our business model. So I think it's important for businesses of the future to internalize those things and to think about those costs. There's an impact of having too much carbon in the atmosphere. It's causing massive hurricanes and damaging the environment all over the world and causing these brush fires and stuff. So if we start to internalize those and account for them in our business and make it so we do become carbon neutral or we sequester more carbon than we release to create our product, then I think that's how we get around that and we can actually avert the climate crisis through those things I've been talking about earlier. We have. And I know you talked about how you got into rich nuts with having sprouted nuts that were able to sustain you health-wise while putting out the brush fires. But dealing with seeing the brush fires in California as a firefighter, is that something that also has made you more concerned about the environment? Yeah, I got hired as a firefighter in 1998, and I retired in 2019. And during that time, I definitely saw an uptick in brush fires. And not only the amount of brush fires, but the intensity with which they kicked in. And brush season used to be, for Southern California area, be maybe late July until it rained, right? If we're having a drought, then it doesn't rain until January sometimes in Southern California, then that's how long brush period would go. But that period seems to start growing and getting earlier and early in the year. We have significant fires now in May in Southern California. So as the season expands, those are growing towards all year round, essentially. Anytime anything that can start a fire falls on the ground, it's trouble. And especially as a firefighter in Southern California, we started becoming short-staffed because we had to do all this additional staffing to meet the demands of the brush season. So anytime it would get windy, we'd all get forced into work because the Santa Ana winds were blowing or the relative humidity was really low. So I really did notice the uptick in fire activity 
intensity, the length of the season, and the intensity with which things were burning. So that did make a big impact on me. There's some things you know intellectually. Say physics, for instance, states that hot air rises, right? Well, when you're a firefighter, you know that in your body because you go into a fire in a building and maybe it's 200 degrees on the bottom two feet and you can survive in that with our gear on and stuff. But if you try to stand up halfway, it might be six or 700 degrees and your helmet would melt, your face shield would collapse and you would die. So you know it like in your body what that means. And I feel like it's the same way with the brush fires. Absolutely. And another thing that I like about your business is you describe it as having a triple bottom business line. Explain more of what that is. Yeah. The triple bottom line is about people, planet, and profit. And it's a lot of the things we've been talking about already. But the people thing, like talking about the farmers and thinking about the farmers and their life and how they exist and how we exist because of them. Most of us never even think about a farmer. I mean, you and I are exceptions to what I'm saying, obviously. Yes. Because <laughs> uh, I have a food business and because I see you at all the conferences, so I know you're into it. But most people don't even think about farmers yet. They eat all the time, and where's that food coming from? Someone's growing it for them, or someone's maintaining the animals, or whatever. There's a person and a family and a livelihood that's attached to that. So let's consider those people. And then also, people also reflect to the people on our team. So I was a firefighter, and that's a semi-military, top-down organization, very masculine-dominated energy. And then I also, before that, I was in the Navy Reserve, helped me pay my way through college and stuff, again, top-down masculine organization. A lot of the organizations in business are also set up that way. So it's kind of like do as I say kind of thing. And one of the things I really enjoy about my business partner and also my wife, our CEO, Samantha, I think you met at the conference. Yes. When we first met, I saw her in leadership at Red Lightning, which was a Burning Man camp. And I like to say that she took the bad news bears to the creative Olympics and won gold because <laughs> she had a very dysfunctional set of people from my perspective. And she got them all to work together through this very collaborative style of leadership, which I had never experienced before coming from the military and the fire department and all this very rah, 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 man stuff. We know how to get it done kind of thing to this collaborative thing. And I was like, wow, this is a really powerful style of leadership. And it's really about nourishing the people, taking care of them. That's how you're going to get the best out of them, not telling them what to do and micromanaging them. So that's what I mean when we say people. When we talk about planet, We've been talking about that throughout the whole show, regenerative agriculture, taking those externalities into our business model. How do we become carbon neutral? How do we become a carbon sink? How can we get compostable packaging? How do we become regenerative? So addressing those issues. And then profit. Obviously, if you don't make a profit, you're just a really expensive hobby. <laughs> and that's not sustainable, right? right? We're not making a profit. I can only keep this up for so long and then I go bankrupt. So that's why we like to bring in the triple bottom line of people, planet, profit. And to be honest, the vision and the goal still feels way out there and we're heading towards it and we've made some really good progress towards it, but I don't feel like we're finished. I like to celebrate our wins. We're organic and we're doing all these great things. We're still heading towards the vision. Yes, heading towards it and heading in the right direction. I think that's a great way to summarize everything. We're just about out of time, but before we go, let the listeners know where they can go online to learn more about Rich Nuts. Yep. You can follow us on Instagram at rich.nuts, which is a great spot. And you can also go to our website, www.richnuts.com. Nice and simple. You can buy product there. You can learn a little bit more about who we are and our story and where we're going. Wonderful. Rich, it's great having you on the program and hearing all about the visions of Rich Nuts. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad that I was able to make it on your show. And it's been a pleasure fielding these questions from you and getting to know you at all the different food conferences over the past couple of years. Absolutely. And I look forward to seeing you at more food conferences in the future. Yeah, you can count on it. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. New episodes of this show are now released every Wednesday. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed.